So once again, we are reading from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, Good evening for those of you who don't know me. My name is Steve, and it's good to have you with us this evening. We are walking through the Psalms this summer. Uh, looking at why it's so good to be near God, and the Psalms give us the language for how to do this. And today, as you just heard read, we're in Psalm 23. It's in the Bible's greatest hits. Uh, Even if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard the Psalm. So there are two main actors in this Psalm. There's the sheep and the shepherd. And there's a lot of things you can say about sheep, and very little of it is flattering. So they are, they're just absurd creatures, are they not? I I read a story this week in the BBC. It was about a group of Turkish shepherds who watched in horror as 1,500 of their sheep followed one another off of a 50-foot cliff. And here's what I found, sorry for you, I'm an animal lover, but I couldn't help but find this kind of funny. The first 400 died, and the remaining 1,100 didn't because they landed on the ones who died. (laughs) Like, are they just ridiculous, farcical creatures? Life is far above the pay grade of a sheep. And as I was studying more this week, what I realized is I think when a lot of us think about sheep, probably the common adjective that comes to mind is what, stupid, right? Sheep are dumb. We hear a lot of stories about this. But what, I, what I gathered is that's actually, it's more complicated than that. And really, if you, could, um, if you could describe sheep in one phrase, it would be an acute sense of their own vulnerability, So when you think about the two things that you need in the wild to survive, you need fight and flight. And sheep have neither. Fight, what are they going to fight with? They can't. They just have to stand there and hope their poof protects them, which it can't. And they can't do flight either because they're slow. And so what sheep, like the main emotion of a sheep is a profound sense of anxiety and fear because they know they're vulnerable. And because of this, sheep have developed a profound herd instinct. They trust the sheep around them. That's probably why they followed one another off of a cliff. And also, sheep have learned that if they don't listen to the voice of their shepherd, then they're not going to make it. And so, given the vulnerability of sheep, given the, the stupidity of sheep, given the absurdity of sheep, it's a really good thing that this psalm here isn't ultimately about the foolishness and goofiness of sheep, but it's about the faithfulness and goodness of the shepherd. And that's what this psalm's about. And so no matter how familiar you are with this psalm, what, what I hope this does for us this evening is the psalm isn't just this, you know, nostalgic poem we go to from time to time to feel good, but it actually becomes something that we live and breathe every day uh, because we all have a shepherd, so to speak, that we go to to listen to, whether it's the voice in our own heads or our own hearts or the voice of someone else, but learning to trust our good shepherd Jesus Christ, through the good and the bad. And so we'll, th- we'll see these three things about our good shepherd uh, in Psalm 23 this evening. Uh, first, we'll see he leads us to the good. Uh, second, we'll see he's with us in the bad. And number three, he promises to bring us home. So he, he leads us to the good. He's with us 
in the bad, and he promises to bring us home. Okay, so first number one, he leads us to the good. We'll see these in order, starting in verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So this confession, the Lord is my shepherd, is a, it's actually a bold and subversive claim to make, particularly in a culture like ours that says what, right? Like the way that you can be happy is by being the captain of your own life, right? And so uh, just this past week, you know that show Loki released on Disney Plus, and I watched it, so one, season, one episode's out, and I watched the first episode, don't worry, I won't spoil it, I don't think. But so Loki is in this room, he's been arrested, and he's with Owen Wilson's character. I just find it hilarious that Owen Wilson's in this series. It's like a serious character, but with a little bit of an undercurrent of comedy. And so Loki's held captive, and Owen Wilson's character looks at him, and he says, what are you going to do if we release you and you return to Earth? And Loki says, I'll reclaim my throne. And Owen Wilson, he raises his eyebrows, and he goes oh, you want to be king, do you? And Loki says, I don't want to be king. I was born to be king. And, you know, we watch that scene. We go, yeah, well, Loki, he's the self-absorbed, you know, pitiable anti-hero. But if you and I are honest, all of us say that in the depths of our own souls, don't we? Like, I was born to be king in my own life. And especially in our modern culture, over and over, what we hear is, right, like the way to live a full life, to be your real authentic self, is to what, essentially be your own king, to listen to your own voice. But David says here, no, it's only when you admit that you are a sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. Only when you're willing to admit, I'm as lost and wayward as a sheep. I need a shepherd to guide me. That's the only way you can get to the second half of verse 1, which says, I shall not want. I lack nothing. So if you want the comfort of Psalm 23, you first have to say, I need a shepherd, and it can't be myself. Okay, and the rest of this psalm is unpacking what I shall not want means, or what it means that we shall not want. So then he says in verse 2, God, our good shepherd, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So I read a book this week by a guy who worked as a shepherd for uh, decades, and he said, sheep, like what they do is once they, a lot of people think they can just live on their own, but what they'll do is they'll go to a place and they'll start grazing, and they'll stay there until they turn the hillside into a desolate wasteland, and then, you know, they'll put their own waste on it, and so everything becomes disease-ridden and corrupt, and even if grass is on right on the other side of the hill, sheep will stay in the pasture that they're in until they die rather than going to the hill where green pastures are. And so what David's saying here is, I need a shepherd who leads me in paths of righteousness, because when I'm left to my own devices, I'll do what I think is good, when in reality it's only, it's only going to destroy me. But it's God who leads me in paths of righteousness, and that's what takes me beside still waters and restores my soul. And as I was thinking, this is so simple, but like, do you guys ever stop to think about... <laughs> How magnificent that it is that Jesus makes so clear in his word what the paths of righteousness are that so, you, so you can flourish. Like he makes it so clear how you can know that you have life eternal. He makes it so clear how to find a stable and fulfilling identity. He makes it so clear how to have meaning in life and deep satisfaction. And this, this isn't, and it often goes against our intuitions, but he makes it so clear and I was thinking about that this week because uh, some of you may be aware if you have a Netflix account. So that uh, that movie Inside was released, I think, a couple weeks ago by the 30-ish-year-old comedian Bo Burnham. 
And so it was completely self-produced. And from what I've gathered, the, the hour and a half, two hour movie, however long it is, is it's him inside of one room filming himself, filming himself. And, you know, he, what it is, is it's less of a comedy and more of a critique on the modern state of the human condition and more specifically human connection. And it's a pretty dismal diagnosis that he gives. And, you know, just reading people's comments, like a lot of people are resonating with it, but not in a happy way, but because of how bleak and true it is. And so I read this article that um, he did an interview with NPR. And so I was reading the interview he did with NPR and he was talking about, so he became a very successful comedian at a young age. And he said about four years ago, he had to stop performing stand-up comedy because he was developing panic attacks and he had tons of anxiety when he was on stage doing his stand-up comedy. And he said, you know, when I, was on, when I was doing stand-up, I would talk about my panic attacks and my anxiety, like on stage, I would, you know, I'd make it funny, but it was real what I was going through. And after my show, I'd have tons of 13 and 14-year-old girls coming up to me and saying, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he said, this, I was like, that makes no sense. You don't, you know, you're not a famous comedian like I am. And he said, oh, no, it does make sense because now with social media, you know, everyone having a smartphone, he sa- what he said was, this is basically a quote, he says, the celebrity pressure I feel has been democratized, right? So now everybody feels it. And everybody feels this pressure to be performing all of the time. And you think that's freeing, you know, where I can just put something out there and people like me and think I'm amazing. But he says, when you're always in front of an audience, he says, that's not freeing. It's, it's like a prison. It's horrible. And that's in large part why he had to step, why he had to step away from, from doing stand-up. And the point of this is, that's just one expression of the many ways that our culture is desperately attempting to find what the green pastures and still waters for our souls. And you might not be looking for it and having, you know, having a, a well-known social media account, but think of the many ways you look for the still waters of the soul. You know, it might be just because there's so many things in life that promise rest. If I can just finish this project at work, I'll have rest. If I can just get this job that makes me feel like I have meaning in my work, I'll have rest. If I can just fix this relationship or get this relationship, I'll have rest. If, I, if my kids can start just sleeping well or behaving this way, I'll have rest. And what David says, none of these things can give you the, the, the green pastures and the still waters that give you ultimate rest for your soul. What does it? It's only by following Christ in the paths of righteousness that are laid out for you, which are found how? Through the ordinary discipline of reading his word. We talked about this last week, right? Developing the the, the discipline of being in his word so much that you get a a sense of the mood of the Bible, like what, what Jesus says to you in every given moment praying to the Lord, being in community so people can um, point out the paths of righteousness in your life. And so as we finish out this, this first point, God the Good Shepherd leads you to the good place. And just a simple question, just ask, do you believe it? I, I don't mean this as rhetoric, like do you really believe that following the commands of Jesus and all the small ups and downs of your lives actually leads to the good place? And that's the first thing. He always leads us to the good place. Okay, so we need a good shepherd to do that. Number two, he's with us in the bad place. So let's read verse four and five. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So now David's moved from the good place and he's moved to the bad place. And know, what, know what's interesting is his shepherd is still guiding him. 
So his shepherds actually led him into the dark place where the valley is. All of a sudden, he's not cut off from God. He's still with God. Okay, and so David's talking about this valley of the shadow of death. And for, you know, David, this was when Saul was hunting him down. For David, this was when he was holding his infant son, crying out to God to spare his life. And his, son, his infant son still died. Okay, for David, this was when his own son Absalom kicked him out of the kingdom and David was on the run from his own son. And for you, I mean, I don't think any of you are running from a monarch. Um, but, you know, think about the valleys of your own life. Some of you are going through it right now. Others of you will be going through a valley. And it might come when that dreaded phone call comes in that says there's been an accident. You need to get to the hospital now. Or, hey, there's a very unexpected diagnosis that I need to tell you, and it's not looking good. It could be a lot smaller than that. Okay, and so what do you do when you're in the valley of the shadow of death? And note, what, note how David describes himself. Okay, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Even though I'm in the bad place, I will fear no evil. Verse 5, even though I'm in the bad place, my cup overflows. And you, you should ask, what? Because here there's a massive disconnect between David's life circumstances and the disposition of his heart. Like he's in a really bad place, and he's saying with utter sincerity, my cup overflows, and I fear no evil. So what's the secret? The secret's the shepherd. David says when you're in the valley, you need to take your eyes off of the shadows and off of the fears and place them on your good shepherd and grab his hand. Because God never promises that your life on this, on this short while and on earth is not going to be bumpy, but what he does promise is that you have a gentle and strong shepherd along the way, even in the valleys, and you need to know he's with you. I was listening to a pastor, his name's David Bisgrove, he does ministry in Manhattan, and he was talking about verse 4 in Psalm 23, and he said how oh, he has a five-year-old daughter, and I appreciate this a lot more now that I have a child. And he said, so his five-year-old daughter, a lot of times she'll wake up with nightmares. And so 90% of the time, what he or his wife can do is they go into her bedroom, and, you know, she's crying, and she's afraid of, you know, there's some shadow on the wall that look like, looks like a monster. And he, you know, reassures her it's not a monster. You know, your mommy and I are right next door. It's just a shadow. You can go back to sleep. He talks her off the ledge. She, go, she goes back to sleep. He says, every now and then, it doesn't work. And so what happens, she keeps coming back into the bedroom, crying, you know, I'm scared, there's a monster. And he says, when that happens, we need to resort to plan B. And so what we do with plan B is this is a Manhattan apartment, they have a small bedroom, and so they have a small bed. And so all three of them can't be in the same bed. So he says, me or my wife has to get out, we bring our daughter in the bed, and tonight it was my turn. And so he says, you know, it's like three in the morning, and his daughter gets in the bed, and, you know, as soon as she gets in the bed, she just hands, you know, all over his face. And so he's trying to, he scoots to the edge of the bed and she keeps following him to the edge of the bed until finally just the entire night is her just with her arms around him. And he says, he, his point is, why does she need to do this? And he says, because the point is, sometimes the fear is so intense that she doesn't just need logic or information. She needs to grab hold of her father and know that he's there. And when the storms come in your life, and they will, and when the valleys come in your life, and they will, often what you'll need is not just to know facts about God, but you'll, you'll need to know he's really there. And he's really with you. And the promise of the scriptures is that's exactly what you get. Because when Jesus comes in, in John chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. 
And while the hired hand will run when the wolf comes, I stay by my sheep's side and I lay my life down for the sheep. And that was the point of the cross. The point of the cross wasn't just forgiveness. The point of the cross was Jesus experienced the, not just a shadow of death, but like the actual physical substance of the monster of death being cut off from God, being utterly alone in the dark without any father to grab a hold of you. Why? So that you, when you cry out to God the Father, know that he is always by your side. And that's why Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 28, I will be with you always. So you need to know when you are in the valley, more than you need facts, more than even you you needing a change in circumstances, you need to know that you have a Savior who hasn't just conquered death, although he did, but he actually knows what the terror and weakness of being surrounded by shadows feels like. And he has your hand and will see you through. And that's the marvelous promise of the gospel, is we don't just get to escape the valley, but we actually have a Savior who's with us, with us in it. And when Christ is your shepherd... He leads you to the good place, but he doesn't just do that. He's with you in the bad place. And then finally, number three, what do we see? He promises to bring us home. We see that in verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow can be translated pursue or to hunt down. So think about Saul pursuing David with that kind of zeal. So David said, surely goodness and mercy are going to pursue me, are going to hunt me down if I know the Lord is my shepherd. And if you think about, if somebody tells you, hey, God's hunting you down, like what's your knee-jerk reaction to that? Probably, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but probably, uh uh-oh. You know, if God's hunting me down, it's probably because I've done something bad and he's hunting me down to condemn me. And what that reveals is the, the twisted view we have of our Lord. <laughs> to assume if he's pursuing us, it's with condemnation instead of goodness and mercy. And so what David's saying here is God doesn't just pull you toward goodness and mercy or steadfast love is another way to translate mercy, but he chases after you with it. Think about all the things real or imagined that pursue you and know that goodness and mercy are the most real things that pursue you if you have God as your shepherd. And they pursue you to what? Verse 6b, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he promises to bring you home. And uh, one way that I heard an English professor describe like any story, especially the best stories, is you can sum up any good story by it's the longing for home. The longing, isn't that perfect? It's, it's the, like any good story has that arc. It's a longing for home. And so this is why, for example, in, um, I'm, trying to reduce my number of Lord of the Rings references. So here's Harry Potter, if most of you have read Harry Potter. <laughs> so like in Harry Potter, in the summer, right, Harry doesn't like going home because it's, it's not a real home. Right? That's just where he's abused by his aunt and uncle. He wants to go to the Weasley's house because that's a home. That's where the fireplace is. That's where the dinner table is. That's where love and light and warmth and laughter are. And the promise of the gospel is you are given a promise that he's bringing you home. This is what we all long for. Right, a place where we can do good work, work with our hands, where our work actually responds to what we do, and that a big table with friends and family where we have not a care in the world other than eating and drinking and laughing and crying with one another. And that's what we get. And so two things here 
just a very clear application. They, they did this for David, you know, as you read Samuel, and they, they'll do it for us. And when you know that this is the home that God is bringing you to, it should give you courage and it should give you comfort. Okay, we'll end with comfort. It's a little bit more of a subdued note, but I want to, because uh, I think that's where we need to end. But first we need to see the courage that this gives us, because if the promise of the gospel is this is the type of party and home life that you are being brought toward, like, shouldn't your life be filled with a little less complaining, a little less self-pity, and filled with a little bit more spirit, a little bit more courage, a little less grudges, a little more gratitude? And so if we're a community of people that says, you know, we're not our own shepherds, but the Lord is our shepherd, like a defining note of our community and ourselves as individuals shouldn't be one of self, self-pity or self-absorption, but gratitude and thanksgiving. I, when you, I, don't think, I don't think there's anybody in heaven right now who's saying, you know, when I was on earth, I wish I lived a little less exuberantly for Jesus. I wish I forgave a little less. I wish I gave to the Lord's kingdom a little less. I wish I worked for myself and my job a little more and a little bit less for the glory and for the will of God. Not a chance. So knowing that the Lord is bringing us home should fill fill us with so much more spirit in all the little things that we do. So it should give us courage and spirit, but number two, it, it should give us comfort. It should give us profound comfort as we think about where the Lord is taking us and what he did. And uh, I came across this poem by uh, David Pallison. And so David Pallison, he passed away about two years ago, and he pioneered a lot of really great things in the biblical counseling world. A great, great guy. I highly commend many of his works. And he wrote an anti-psalm to 23. And his point is, here's, here's what's true if Christ didn't raise from the dead. And he basically takes Psalm 23 and he flips it from my head. And, and as we go through this, I want you to think about how often do you live as if this is reality for you instead of the, the actual Psalm 23 that we're given through Christ. Okay, so here's his uh, anti-Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. All I experience is a continual sense of need. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. I feel overwhelmed. My soul, my soul feels broken down, twisted. I can't fix myself. I'm haunt, haunted by emptiness. I fear the big hurt. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that, so I protect myself. I can't trust anyone. No one is really for me except me, and even that's a lie. My cup is never full enough. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I be alone, forever, homeless? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. I am a living death, then I die. And, you know, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead... What we just heard is one of the most true things about your life. And so I want us all to consider here, just, (laughs) do we have simple gratitude for what Christ has done for us? 
And as you go throughout your life, like in practice, how often do you believe that lie? That I'm all alone and ultimately no one's with me or for me except for myself. <laughs> I just live a empty, hopeless existence. Instead of the promise of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I heard a story about a little boy who believed this. And um, so there was a young boy, and he got uh, diagnosed with, a, uh, with terminal cancer. And he didn't have much long to live. And his mother taught him to memorize Psalm 23. And she taught him the first line by uh, counting the words on his hand. So, the Lord is my shepherd. And she said, anytime he says the word my in the psalm, to grab that finger with his other fist to remind him of the intimate personal relationship he had with Jesus Christ. Well, the little boy died a few weeks later, and when they found him, he was holding that finger. And I, I think just that that little boy understood what you and I so often forget. Like, not just with his head, but he really believed it. That though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he had nothing to fear because of who Christ is. And so just ask yourself, what is the primary voice that I'm listening to in my life? Is it the fluttering and anxiety of my own heart is it the counsel of other people, or is it the voice of my good shepherd? And when you listen to the voice of your good shepherd, you can know he always leads you to the good place. He is with you in the bad place, and he promises to bring you home, even through the door of death itself, where all other guides turn back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you so much that you're a good shepherd, and I, um, <laughs> I need to believe that more. And I pray for me and everyone in this room, Lord, that we will listen to your voice and uh, just experience the assurance and the comfort and the courage that comes from knowing that we will dwell in your house forever, and you're with us all the way into that end. Thank you so much for Jesus, who gave everything up so we can have this promise. It's in his name we pray. Amen.